On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. There is one of the front pages that doesn't discuss anything to do with the Kerry baby. So I'll start with that one first. It is the business, pa- uh, business post this morning in which we're told that the shadow banking sector is the soft spot in the financial system and could trigger the next economic crisis. That is according to the Vice President of the European Central Bank, who has told the Business Post that he believes the European banking sector is sound and resilient, but that the non-bank sector could be a whole source of problems for the whole financial system. Now, the non-bank sector involves firms which are engaged in bank-like activities but are not registered nor regulated as banks. They include the likes of funds, insurance firms, venture capitalists and currency exchanges. It's also commonly known as the shadow banking or market-based finance sector. Uh, Luis de Guinos, who is the Vice President of the the ECB, uh, has given an interview to the uh, the Business Post in which he says that firms in that sector have taken a lot of risks during the period of low interest rates and they could now be exposed by rate rises and that could indeed uh, in, in, uh, could have some knock-on consequences uh, for the rest of the whole global financial system. Uh, also this week in the Business Post, uh, there is another Red Sea poll and we'll go through the party findings of that maybe a little bit later on. But interestingly, it finds that voters are divided on the government's decision to end the eviction ban for tenants. It finds that 46% of people are opposed to ending the ban, uh, but 36% of people support the idea of of uh, ending it, while 18% of people are undecided. And it's interesting that society might be split that firmly down the middle, uh, given the volume of, of uproar that there appears to have been about the government's decision a couple of weeks ago. Um, as I said, other than that, the front pages are, are pretty uniformly um, about the latest in the Kerry Babies investigation. At uh, the Mail on Sunday tells us that the couple arrested on suspicion of murder in the Kerry baby's case face being rearrested as detectives continue their investigation into the brutal murder of the five-day-old infant known as Baby John in 1984. The Mail on Sunday understands that DNA taken from a bin indicated the identity of the parents of the infant. Uh, two people, a man in his 60s and a woman in her 50s, uh, were subsequently arrested as part of an ongoing investigation. This is not over by a long shot, said a source. A file is being prepared for the DPP and they could be brought in again and questioned. That's the front page of the Mail on Sunday. Uh, the Sunday Times says that Guardia are investigating the idea that the parents of baby John may have given the infant to his killer. Uh, Guardi are trying to establish whether baby John was stabbed to death by a third party, the Sunday Times says, after his parents this week denied any involvement in the killing of the newborn boy almost four decades ago. The couple were arrested on suspicion of murder last Thursday and rejected the allegation during six interview sessions. Uh, a source tells the Sunday Times that they retained their silence for much of their interrogations. Guardi are looking into the possibility that baby John was given to a third party who may have killed the infant. The couple cannot be charged with any concealment offence because of the statute of limitations. Gardier are expected to begin approaching their extended families and neighbours of the time to ask whether they remember anything suspicious. Uh, New investigations have uncovered evidence showing that he was born to the Kerry couple who were previously unknown to Gardier. And on the front page of the Sunday Independent, an interview with the solicitor uh, for the two people who were arrested um, as part of that investigation, both of whom were uh, released without charge in the last 36 hours or so. Patrick O'Connell says that all Gardaí wanted was an admission from the couple who were questioned in Castle Island and Listole over 24 hours. Uh, there will be no admission, he says, because it would be absolutely impossible to admit to something that is untrue. Uh, the woman in her late 50s and the partner in his early 60s were arrested on suspicion of murder. Uh, Patrick O'Connell, who is the solicitor representing both those people, said that his clients were an ordinary, hard-working couple whose arrest at home on Thursday was a bolt out of the blue. 
They have two grown-up children, they are gainfully employed and they are respected in their communities, he said. Uh, the Sunday Independent understands that the woman who was arrested is the daughter of a Kerry Garda who passed away in the 1970s, several years before the now discredited investigation into the infant's death. Uh, the baby was discovered on a Kerry beach in April 1984 with 28 stab wounds to his body. Gardaí secured false confessions from Joanne Hayes and her family spawning uh, the Kerry baby scandal. Um, understandable that there is a certain uniformity to the front pages um, of the papers this morning. To discuss those in some more detail, we're joined by Hugh O'Connell, who's the Deputy Political Editor at the Irish and Sunday Independent, and by Louisa Meehan, who is a HR and dispute resolution expert with Woodview uh, HRM. Uh, good morning to you both. Uh, Louise, I'll start with yourself. It, it's sort of difficult really to know where to start uh, in the coverage of the um, the Kerry Babies developments this week. But what jumps out for you in this morning's coverage? You know, I think uh, for me as a mum with two boys, I just find it so incredibly sad. It's clear that the man and woman who have been arrested in this situation seem to be the parents. We're waiting for that to be conclusively determined by the guards or, or announced at least. Um, and as you said, the solicitor, Pork um, O'Connell, has commented extensively on what good citizens they are. You know, no mm. penalty points. They've never been in a guard station and they called it an intense interrogation that they endured for the sort of 24 hour period that they were being interrogated for. You know, I think we need to get answers to the questions. The guards have clearly put in a lot of work in recent years, at least, um, albeit that the original investigation seems to be flawed Mm. extensively. Um, And they've spent the last four years doing DNA tests with over 400 people in Curry willingly coming forward and and giving of their DNA. So it's the fact that we can now look at the DNA of blood relatives that has led to this couple being detected. Mm. Um, Hugh O'Connell, your your thoughts on any of the coverage this morning in the papers? Uh, Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's... it's, um it's it's forcing us to kind of contend with kind of something very bad that happened in the 1980s mm-hmm. um, and particularly that you know what happened to Joanne Hayes um and I, I was quite struck by Jer Colleran's piece and he wrote a book with with Michael O'Regan about yeah. this case uh, who you're going to have on shortly um but he he makes the point that a lot of the analysis of this has been um you know around how Ireland was so very misogynistic uh, how women were very much second class citizens uh, and that, all those things are true, but that he points out that it's not just misogyny that it was the culprit here, but that it was the state in trying to uh, protect the Guardi, um, uh, you know, a guard of force, which you know you read in a lot of the coverage today, that at the time was contending uh, with the IRA. Um, there's a, a fascinating statistic in a piece by Barry O'Halloran in the Sunday Independent today about how there was a, there was a point at which uh, a lot of guard, successful guard of prosecutions hinged on uh, obtaining uh, confessions from, I think in 80% of cases at one point, uh, confessions from uh, those who stood accused. Mm. Um, and that was obviously what you know what happened to Joanne Hayes. A confession was procured, and, and obviously then it was it was it was thrown out because it wasn't true. Um, so you know, I think we have to look at we have to you know contend with that as well. And it took the state forty years to apologise to Joanne Hayes, or, or nearly forty years. Mm. Um, and I think that you know we seem to spend a lot of time, particularly in the last ten years, contending with historic wrongdoings uh, by the state, and we're still dealing with them. Um, and uh, you know, this is this is just yet another one um, that we're trying to write. Um, but there, you know, there are many more dark chapters in Ireland's uh, history. I think that we'll have to contend with in the years ahead. Mm. Um, and I suppose now, look, the focus just has to be on on bringing this case to a conclusion and, and finding the culprit or culprits sure. conclusively and, and securing a, a successful prosecution for Baby John.
You mentioned uh, Michael O'Regan. I'll get both of you to pull on your headphones because Michael O'Regan, as you mentioned, is on the line. Michael, who who covered all of this in great detail for the Carryman, and then, as you say, co-wrote a book afterwards with Jerk Holland about all of this. Um, Michael, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. We've been looking to try and have a reason to have you on the program. I'm sorry that it's in these sorts of circumstances. Um, one thing that jumps out to me immediately from that front page of the Sunday Independent is a line from Patrick O'Connell, the solicitor, who says that the treatment of his clients in terms of the breaches of privacy and the attention focused on them was not dissimilar to the treatment of Joanne Hayes herself in, in 1984. Is that a sense that you get from seeing the events of the last 72 hours? I have to say I don't, Gavin. But By the way, I covered it for the Irish Times at the time. Actually, I oh, left the uh, Jor, Jor was in the Carryman at the time. He was news editor. Jor Cullen. Mm. Uh, uh, but, um, no, I don't, Gavin. I have to say this. And, I, look, I'm very conscious of uh, the terrible element of human tragedy in all of this. And I, I have to say, I know nothing of the people brought into the Garda station in question. I know nothing about them. But I, I don't think it's fair, and I'll tell you why. Media has to do its job to cover events as they unfold. And the media had to do its job. In recent days, the media had to do its job in the mid-1980s. And, I, I mean, I've even seen some comments, particularly on social media. Uh, you know, uh, why didn't the media say this? Why did the media do that, et cetera, et cetera, in the mid-1980s? And uh, what, was, what was there, Gavin, as there's now, uh, uh, Ireland's draconian defamation laws hovered over analysis of the Kerry Babies Tribunal in the mid-1980s, as it did for many years later, by the way. Uh, I can remember writing that book with Jared Curran, uh, and we going to our legal advisors at the time, having very, very fraught meetings about what we could write and what we couldn't write. Could we push the boundaries of comment here and there? Uh, and sometimes we couldn't, you know, and with an excellent uh, media or uh, legal advisor at the time. Mm. Uh, people tend to forget that, you know. But no, I, I don't accept... Uh, what was said by the couple solicitor. Yeah. Um, there's already been one text into uh, our WhatsApp number 87 106 from, from Paddy. And Paddy is already touching on something you've mentioned there because he says that the press were complicit in the witch hunt of Joanne Hayes. Not one newspaper or journalist said the tribunal was wrong, but neither did they shout stop, says Paddy. But, uh, but I suppose, Michael, what you're really getting at there is that much like court reporting today, or if you're covering a tribunal or a commission of investigation or something today, it's not really the media's job to start second guessing what is going on in a public inquiry. You have to sort of give it its fair due, even if it does, on the face of it, seem to be a bit absurd. Absolutely. I, I can remember, for instance, uh, sitting to Peter Murta uh, and myself covered the early stages of the uh, tribunal for the Irish Times. Peter then went to London midway to the tribunal to take up a, a job at the Sunday Times. But I can remember Peter and myself sitting down one evening to write the page one story. Uh, we, yeah, it, there was a page one story every day, uh, plus a full page of reportage. By the way, this was back, Gavin, uh, as you know, when print was king, as a first, so to speak. Mm. Uh, and there was no social media, no email, nothing like that. And we laboured over two paragraphs on the intro to the front page piece, uh, simply for legal reasons. Now, and we sat down and we wrote uh, and we rewrote it. And, and that's how uh, that's how you do it. And it's the same with court reporting today. But can I nail something, Gavin? Please do. <laughs> As somebody who was around at the time and covered it and co-wrote that book with Gerard Callan, 
that in some way the media sat back or something at the time, right? Now, Irish society, for all how backward we are, and backward is the word, I, I don't apologise for using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Irish society did, there were protests outside the tribunal, that. but as regards to the media coverage, the media did what it could. And can I point out to one thing? On the day after the publication of the report uh, in 1985, uh, um, the Irish Times carried an editorial written by Conor Brady, uh, who had uh, written a book on the history of the Gardaí. So he's, you know, he had fairly good credentials. He was then an assistant editor of the Irish Times, there to become editor. And he excoriated the report and the judge. Uh, uh, now, this is the day after the report, Gavin, I stress, and can I just quote from it to show people that the media didn't acquiesce with all that was going on. Uh, you see, what the report should have shown was, and why the, the tribunal was set up to investigate how come the Gardaí uh, uh, produced statements by the Hayes family to a crime they could not possibly have committed. Mm. And the um, uh, it, it, this is the editorial responding to the report. It is especially unsatisfactory in that it fails to explain how the detailed statement from the Hayes family tallying precisely indeed details which are now known to be false came to be taken in Tralee Garda Station and at the Hayes Farmhouse on May the 1st and 2nd, 1984. Who came up with these details? How do they come to be translated into statements supposedly taken after caution? The judge cites two causes, pressure and the guilty conscience of the Hayes family. Those answers are no answers at all, unquote. But that's a fairly tough editorial against the report and the High Court judge. And bear in mind, I'll tell you how how fraught legally the whole scene was at the time, Gavin. Uh, Joanne Hayes produced her own book, My Story. It was ghostwritten by a journalist, published by Brandon Books. A number of guards sued, they won their case, and financially damaged Brandon Books at the time fairly severely. Um, on a, a factual basis, Michael, and you, you would have covered this in so much more detail that maybe you'd be a good authority to this, um, some textures have already gotten in touch this morning to point out that there could be some complications about any prosecution now, even at this far removed, about the murder of baby John, because the tribunal which was set up to try and rescind the false confessions never actually managed to do that. So there is a legal argument that the con- the confessions, albeit they demonstrably false, still stand and still may have some legal weight. Would that be your take on things, or do you think that the the errors of old could still come back to, to complicate this in any other way? No, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, in fact, that chapter, so to speak, is closed. And I'll tell you why as well. Uh, the, uh, there was the, uh, the Garda apology in 2018, uh, and then the reopening of the case, uh, you know, on full marks to the Garda, sure. who seem to have had a very tenacious investigation since then. And then, of course, in 2020, you had the courts effectively throwing out the Lynch report. And by implication, of course, uh, the, the, uh, criticising the Garda in investigation. Also, it only emerged a few years ago in state papers that at that time uh, the, Garda, the then Garda Commissioner Lawrence Wren was hugely critical of the Garda investigation into the Kerry's baby, baby's case. So we have to separate the two here. 
the uh, investigation into the the investigation of the 1980s, the subsequent tribunal, its unsatisfactory uh, end, Mm. so to speak, is totally separate from the current investigation. Okay. Well, at least there is that that reassurance because some people may be wondering if there were sort of ongoing complications. Uh, Michael, I really appreciate your insight on all of that this morning. Thank you for joining us this morning on the record. That's Michael O'Regan who covered the events of the tribunal in some detail um, for the Irish Times when they got underway all the way back uh, in the mid-1980s. Uh, still joined in studio by Hugh O'Connell and by Louisa Meehan. Um, Louisa, we were just discussing before we came on air that, that all three of us have kids. Yours are, are slightly older than, than mm-hmm. mine and Hugh's. So I don't know whether they are of an age where they might pay attention to the news and they might sort of wonder what all of this is about. But in truth, I, I cannot even fathom trying to explain to somebody of a younger generation, even to people of, of our own generations, how you can explain how somebody who had nothing to do with the whole case, who happened to have a pregnancy at around about the same time, became the subject of such intense national attention and such state attention when they were just a complete innocent bystander to the whole thing and how they have inextricably become so central to the whole thing. Like, I don't even know how in the present day you start to explain the circumstances of that to people. But I think that's the point. In the present day, you can't. It is it is inexplainable. But we're not in the present day. In, in that particular situation, you're going back 40 years mm. and they were trying to find a solution or an answer to a heinous crime. I mean, 28 stab wounds and a broken neck on a five-day-old. I actually don't even know how that is possible Mm. to do. So the guards and the individuals at the time were just trying to to make it go away. And they had a way of making it go away with somebody who was willing to help them on that journey. That was not right. It Mm. wasn't the correct approach. But you know, we have to be very careful with hindsight that we don't look back through rose-tinted glasses thinking we'd have done something amazingly better or different. We don't know. Um, and I think what is to the credit of the guards, to the credit of the people in Curry who are dealing with this firsthand, is that they haven't let it go, that they have come back and that 40 years later we're still talking about it and they're trying to address it and correct the wrongs of the past. And that that's the key here, that they haven't just said, Osher, it's done and it's gone. Mm. They're coming back to us. You sort of wonder though, Hugh, how, how we managed to ever be a society where um, because there was one apparent scapegoat that even such such bizarre theories as being pregnant simultaneously twice by two different men, that mm. that was the conclusion that people then arrived at and that was seen as being passable because it was something proposed by the guards. Like, yeah. I remember there being talk of the, what was the, the, the person, Jerry O'Connell, who was responsible and there was this idea that he was some kind of Sherlock Holmes figure for having finally got to the bottom of all of this for his yeah. bizarre contention. Well, it is bizarre because it's 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 known as a super fecundation, and I think it's a, it's a one in a million, if not more, uh, chance. It's biologically possible, but it's pretty improbable, uh, mm. pretty unlikely. Um, but this theory, uh, you know, took hold of the guards, and it was their working theory. Um, but it was preposterous, um, and I think that you know. Uh, there was intense public scrutiny at the time on the case because obviously the discovery of a of a baby with with twenty eight stab wounds on a beach in in rural Kerry is is an appalling thing. I mean, mm. it, w- it would be, it would be something that would command major national attention if it were to happen now. Um, but the you know that intense pressure and you know I'm not offering this as as excuse or anything, but you know a guard of force uh, at the time contending with a threat to the very state uh, th- from the IRA. You know, a, a murder squad, as it was known, the heavy gang, procuring confessions from from an awful lot of individuals. Um, you know, in, in some instances, doing it not not by the book at all. 
Um, so all of these factors play into this approach and all of that compounded by uh, the state's reaction being to within a very short period by, mm. by the end of 1980 that this, this, uh, the body was discovered in, at the end of April 1984 and by the end of, the, of 1984 Michael Noonan the Justice Minister at the time had set up this state inquiry yeah. that played out across 1985 uh, and just turned into this bizarre well not bizarre but, but just this, this appalling attack on Joanne Hayes and her family um, from which it, it, it took decades yeah. for, for the state to acknowledge its, its, its role in that and uh, for and for the case to be to be thrown out by the yeah. courts as Michael was explaining earlier. I should just cl- clarify one thing by the way that I've just misnamed somebody who was involved in all of this the person that I'm referring to Jerry O'Carroll was a retired uh, detective inspector who was one of the two officers who interviewed Joanne Hayes himself uh, in 1984 he is quoted today in the Irish Sunday Mirror as saying that he wants a full public inquiry because he wants in his words he wants to be put to bed forevermore uh, before he passes on to the next world he will not have that hanging over his name and his reputation he was a good detective for 24 years he says he was involved in over 100 murder investigations and never once was he condemned by a court or castigated or criticised. He has always felt that this was a huge blemish on his career, a huge one, and he wants his name cleared once and for all. And indeed, all that anyone really wants is for the truth and for justice to prevail in this. Um, a couple of WhatsApp messages before we move on. Um, Maraid, who's listening in Germany. Uh, good morning to you, Maraid. Um, he sa- she says that this lady was a teenager in 1984. She was living in the same prejudiced Ireland. Who knows what mental state she was in bearing a child at that time, possibly also unmarried and with no support. It doesn't take from a crime being committed, but it certainly sets the scene for how a desperate person could be driven to do desperate things, uh, says Maraid. And Fiona is in touch to say the Kerry baby case should be laid to rest and not reported on. Uh, whatever was done to the baby by whom happened in the context of a society that treated Joanne Hayes as they did, I don't see how knowing who killed the baby will make anything better for society. Maybe it will help Joanne. It is just so sad, says Fiona. I think the concluding point there, Fiona, we will move on after this, is that all citizens are entitled to justice and baby John was a five-day-old citizen who has never now received justice and justice delayed is still justice denied but better to have it delayed 40 years uh, than to allow the state to let it rest and to never pursue the truth of what happened to that five-day-old boy found on that beach in County Kerry. Um, Hugh, I will fully admit that I have never been to the Doll Gym to the point where I don't. I know what building it's in, but I wouldn't know where to find it inside the building. Have you ever darkened the door of the no, Doll Gym? No, I, I haven't. I have to say, um, I, and of course, it was, I, I seem to recall that it was um, only in the last few years that it was opened up to uh, to journalists to be yes. able to use, which yeah. uh, was obviously a great privilege. But I, I don't think many many journalists well, have used I, it. Well, I'm, I'm only aware of one journalist who was no longer even, in fact, among the press corps in Leinster yeah. House who ever used it, and that was because they were made to sign some form attesting that they wouldn't take photographs of that's TVs right. in their workout yeah. wear. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously. CTDs would be, uh, you know, wouldn't want to be photographed, and, yeah. and that photo distributed of them working out, or maybe some would. Yeah. But it, it seems from the story in the Sunday Times today that the the gym, which was obviously effectively out of use for two years because of COVID nineteen, um, and certainly there was a more conservative approach, I would say, to public health to 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 uh, rather to to administering the public health advice uh, in the houses of the Oireachtas mm. complex more generally over those two years. And the gym was closed for a long time. It was opened up last year, but the uh, Number of visits, you know, uh, follows the same trend. I think as you would find with any gym, where January is uh, a hot month, yeah, and it all kind of falls off after that. Yeah, um, so we should explain that th- this is a gym which is—it's uh, not in historical Leinster House itself. I think it's over the road uh, on the other side of, of Kildare Street, in on a premises occupied by the Oireachtas, and it's open to um, all members of Leinster House staff. So it's not just the the elected members themselves, but also civil servants and people who are political staff who work in the offices of TDs and senators and political parties, and the figure supplied uh, to the Sunday Times suggests that the uh, the level of visits at least by the elected members 
has pretty much gone off a cliff. As you say, January, the most popular month, but that it's used very little by those for whom it is yeah. technically I, know, I mean, I know some staff, some staff uh, in Leinster House who, who kind of work there who um, who do use it um, quite regularly, I think, as well. And, and look, it's it's great that the, the facility provides a gym, and I suppose some of the public will be asking, well, how much are we paying for all this? Um, you know, when uh, lots of people just have their own gym, private gym membership. Um, but uh, yeah, look, I mean, perhaps the, the low level of usage might prompt a rethink with regards to having the gym at all or maintain. I mean, we, I don't really know what the what, what type of equipment is there, mm. whether it's modern, whether it's updated every few years or, or what exactly happens. Well, the 60 square metre gym in Calair House is fitted out with cardiovascular equipment, including four treadmills, two cross trainers, oh, two rowers and two exercise bikes. It also has extensive resistance training equipment, including two sets of dumbbells, two adjustable benches and a host of other multifunctional machines. It certainly sounds like I'm doing the cash machine read all over again with this kind of promotional tone um, not, not terribly popular though. and maybe, not open to the general public no ma- ma- maybe so it needs perhaps we should stop promoting it. Maybe, maybe it needs more promo uh, Louise, given the, the disclosure that in fact in April 2019 these figures are for 2019 by the way because it's the last full year that it was actually open um, that only one elected representative showed up for the entire month of April like it does seem like it could be better used Potentially it could be better used, but I think perhaps just like the politicians try to encourage us to be healthier and uh, more environmentally friendly and look after ourselves, we need to encourage them to go use the gym more. Because there's a lot of evidence out there that demonstrates that when you get your blood moving around your brain, you're more capable of making better decisions. <laughs> so, so it should be mandatory you know, then is what I you're saying. I think it should be mandatory gym yeah. training for our TDs. That would be good. They'd love yeah. it. Yeah. So, <laughs> we need to get go into the one-stop shop and they're getting supplied with their, their taxpayer phones and iPads and everything else. Exactly. It should be the fitness test like the guards. <laughs> <laughs> did you see, what did you did you see the Jim O'Callaghan yeah. video of him trying to attempt the fitness test? No. Now I, I I did think so. Jim O'Callaghan was was wondering whether it would be appropriate to adjust the uh, the fitness thing because currently over thirty fives can't really apply, and he was d- trying to demonstrate that it's possible for over thirty fives to fulfil the fitness criteria. And to be fair, he videos himself undergoing the test, and he would pass it. And like w- well done to him, but I I kind of wasn't sure whether he was the most the fair representation, given that Jim O'Callaghan quite literally used to play for Leinster. So well, yeah, generally in better and shape than a lot of people. A, his anyone age. who knows Jim knows that he cycles everywhere as well. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's a, he'd be probably a pretty fit guy. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe perhaps there's other members of Fianna Fáil who would. Uh, be better, better guinea uh, <laughs> pigs. Let, let, let's not start. We, we to, won't ask you to name no, any. Let, no, let's absolutely not. not. Just, no, just no, at no, this no. point. Uh, but speaking of, of uh, fitness of the body, uh, what about fitness of the mind? Because there is a fascinating piece on page uh, ten and eleven, uh, Louisa, of the um, the Mail on Sunday today about uh, what is described as a potent psychoactive drug, which Prince Harry's has changed his life, which is being illegally imported into Ireland, openly advertised and freely distributed as a magic medicine. Tell us more. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, this seems to be around for quite a while, but with Prince Harry talking about it, of course, it's it's reaching headlines again. Um, and he says it's cleaning, like cleaning the windshield of life's filters. Now, I'm not sure that my filters are quite so dirty that I need to take a drug <laughs> to go and clean them. Um, there seems to be a retreat over near Claire Morris in Mayo with a Mr. Ewart from Australia. Australia, who uh, brings people together for a period of time and this drug is used on a number of occasions over a number of days to allow you to better engage with who you are. I did find it interesting that he said women are more receptive to change. He didn't quite go into a lot of detail in relation to why they're more receptive to change. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, ultimately what's most important in this story is the smallest element, which is the Dr. Max... Pemberton, um, an NHS psychiatrist, yes, talking about the risks in relation to taking illegal drugs. And I think 
whilst we may all want to clean our life's windshields, we need to be really careful about the substances that we're putting into our body and having drugs that are brought into the country illegally um, through illegal mechanisms called magic medicine doesn't seem like something we should be promoting as a safe way of assessing one's life. Yeah, well, the, the one thing, well, there's two things which are striking about it. Firstly, that um, it is illegal to um, to, to, to be, possess this drug. It's, it's basically, it's commonly known, by the way, as ayahuasca. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If there's any uh, Spanish speakers or anyone else who can get in touch to correct me on that. Ayahuasca, I think, is how it's pronounced. Um, that it is illegal in Ireland. And yet, um, this, among many other places, um, are openly selling tickets for retreats where it's stated that the drug will be administered, which which is quite striking. You're like, quite hey, striking. this is illegal, but, yes. you know, if you want to come and have it, you and know, it fill your boots. The, the guards seem to know where these retreats are and they don't seem to be overly concerned if they're well, allowing them to be advertised. They do say that they've seized uh, suspected DMT, which is also known as... Um, yeah. I won't try... Is uh, it the official name for yeah, it? Yeah, the official name. I won't try yeah. to pronounce that one. Uh, and investigations are ongoing. So they do seem to be taking a look at this issue because obviously it's something that, that seems to be coming a bit more prevalent. And, and obviously if Prince Harry is... Uh, advertising it um, you know some people might want to uh, want to try it out because it seems to have well, yeah. he says it's it's had a very powerful effect. Very on powerful. Him. Uh, I don't know. Is is it discussed in his autobiography, or if, if anyone has read the, the Prince Harry autobiography? No, he he he, he seems to have disclosed this in an intimate conversation about living with loss and personal healing with Doctor uh, Gabor Mate. Um, recently, okay. a public conversation. Gabor Mate is, is described in this piece as a toxic trauma expert. Another public conversation by a guy who left his family yes. moved to the other side of the world to try and get away from yeah, the indeed. public case. Public and, and intimate and private at the same time. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I did the, the South Park thing about the worldwide privacy tour was just sensationally on the button, just how, how, how easily they, they lampooned all of that. Um, N-N-dimethyltryptamine is oh, well the official done. name of D- DMT. I had a few seconds to prepare that <laughs> while you were talking to each other. Um, it's a control a Controlled drug under the Misuse of Drugs Acts 1977 to 2016 and possession of DMT is illegal, according to a Garda Shiakana. They further advise that it is an offence to cultivate, import, export, produce, supply and possess DMT, except in accordance with a ministerial, li- a ministerial license. Does that mean that you can you can lobby Stephen Donnelly to ask for permission to take ayahuasca? Uh, or, or is there some Harris. other... Or, or Simon Harris. Um, Angarda Giacona has in recent months uh, seized suspected DMT and investigations are ongoing. Psychedelic retreats in countries such as Costa Rica and Jamaica, where many psychedelic substances are allowed, are experiencing widespread growth, the Mail on Sunday tells us. Uh, psychedelic drugs appear to be quietly being embraced by the global wellness industry, but experts have urged caution. Um, if uh, in the unlikely event that any uh, listeners to On the Record this morning have pre- pursued ayahuasca or, or any other similar drugs and have gone on any of these retreats um, let us know how you got on and, and whether you were in any way concerned that you were attending something which is openly expressed as being illegal in Ireland uh, do let us know 87 uh, is the number how you can get in touch or our hashtag is on the record NT uh, Colin and Kerry has been in touch about the Leinster House gym he says it's a workplace gym loads of places have them if it encourages more people to enter politics all the better says Colin and Kerry I Kerry. don't think people looking to get into politics would think a gym in Leinster House is, is the big no. attraction you know uh, no I'd say the, particularly the, when you, you know, put it with all the other no I imagine the, the 107,000 euro salary and the prospect of a full pension within 20 years uh, might be slightly more attractive Indeed. than the idea of having a subsidised gym but look beach their own it's there in Kildare House Uh, if you want to ever run for office and then pursue that.
Uh, one medic, by the way, has been in touch asking us to please be careful when we're discussing psychodynamic medicine and trauma. There are very compelling evidence of benefits with this, but only in property controlled settings, uh, says that person. And we are trying to um, try not to sound like we are glorifying it too much. Um, there is one story which, of course, is dominant again in the papers this week, which we haven't been discussing that thus far. And that is the ending of the evictions ban and the prospect of there being an increase in homelessness in less than a week's time when that, that ban is lifted. Um, what is very striking is that there in the Red Sea poll uh, conducted this weekend for the Business Post um, that there appears to be quite a, a, a not perfect division but a, a relatively even split in the public about where people stand on all of this uh, an online poll of a thousand voters show that 46% are opposed to the ending of the ban but 36% support the government's decision to do it and 18% are undecided and the reason I find that striking Hugh is that you would think from the tenor of the conversation there's been in the public in the last three weeks or so uh, that the public were pretty uniformly against uh, the lifting of the evictions ban but it seems there might be more support for it than people think yeah I think so I mean I look I, I think we've been hearing obviously a lot from the opposition um, who who are uh, adamant that the ban should be extended and we've also been hearing a lot of the human uh, interest human interest is probably the wrong word but the, the, the kind of the impact on people of ending the eviction ban and particularly those obviously in rental accommodation and the fear uh, that pervades uh, people in in that situation uh, which is, of course, something that, that we uh, we have to be cognizant of. But there does obviously seem to be a, a sort of a, almost a, a silent uh, minority, I guess, who um, believe that the ban, that ending the ban, is is the right decision. And, and I'm obviously, as a, as a political correspondent, quite keen to break, you know, to, to examine the, the breakdown in terms of uh, the people uh, most in favour of ending the ban. Who do they support? And yeah. not surprisingly, they are supporters of the government parties. But even take Sinn Fein, for example, 64% of Sinn Fein supporters in favour of extending the eviction ban, which you, you would expect. But then there's 23%, a fifth, more than a fifth, nearly a quarter of Sinn Féin supporters who wanted to end. Mm. Um, so that, I suppose, shows the, the level of, of division within society about this issue. It's it's become a pretty totemic issue. I think it's, it's an issue which is uh, potentially... Um, it, it, it's catastrophic for people, but it's also catastrophic for the future of the coalition, I think, potentially. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get into that maybe in, yeah, well, in a few yeah, minutes. Yeah, but, um, so but yeah, look, it's... That, it's yeah. it's um, it's it's not an it's an issue I think that we're going to be discussing on these this program and on other programs for the for the next few yeah. weeks. Yeah, uh, broken down geographically, forty percent of respondents in Dublin support the lifting of the evictions ban. Forty four percent don't. In the rest of Leinster, thirty three percent support the government stance. Forty five percent don't. In Munster, thirty five percent support lifting it. Forty seven don't. And exactly the same proportions in Ulster and Connacht. Uh, as you said, Finnegale. 54% of Finnegal respondents happy with what the government is doing 20% 27% aren't um, which is interesting in its own right that people are still prepared to support a government party when they're pursuing that policy 49% of Fianna Fáil supporters are happy with the government's lifting of the ban 35% aren't again reminder that Fianna Fáil is the party that currently holds the office of the uh, Ministry for Housing and uh, 23% of uh, supporters of Sinn Féin as Hugh mentioned um, content with the lifting of the evictions ban 64% not independence by the way 38% in favour of doing it um, it is surprising that the, the proportions are perhaps that high, Louisa, but you maybe wonder, are there some people within there who, A, themselves are, are maybe landlords or people who are struggling to find a rental property themselves and believe that there is a, a stock of rental properties being hoarded up because there are people in them who can't be moved out right now? Yeah, and I think, for me, I think actually the government are in a hard place here because they, I don't believe that they have a choice but to lift the band um, because ultimately you can't tell in a free society people how they control their asset and people may need to sell the property to buy their own house or for whatever the reasons are. Um, 
I think the article um, from Neve Horan, who's talking about the importance of not sort of pitting landlord against tenant is really important because there are some institutional landlords, but a lot of the landlords that they're talking about in relation to selling properties or issues are smaller landlords, whether mm. they're there because it's their pension or accidental accidental landlords, as we talk about. But there are neighbours. There, the you know, our nurses, our doctors, our teachers. There are friends and our colleagues, and we have to be really careful about putting in place. Um, a piece of legislation that prevents somebody from using their asset to better their life. Yeah. What I thought found striking about all of this is that the government is now using the likes of that. So people who can't move into their own homes or people who can't use their own property to house a, a member of their, their immediate family. And those were shortcomings which were pointed out by by journalists like me. In fact, I specifically remember doing it at the time, pointing out that there were cases of people who were moving back abroad and who now wouldn't be able to move into their own homes and pointing out that that was the prospect of a legal challenge being brought by someone who couldn't use their own house to live in themselves. And the government overlooked or chose not to include some exemptions at the time and is now citing the lack of those exemptions as reasons why it has to lift the ban outright instead of just continuing it but including a couple of exemptions for people who need to live in their own houses, for example. Look... I think the the crux of the issue here isn't about should the ban be there or not because clearly you should be able to control your property within reason. Um, The crux of the issue is that it was brought up in the Mail on Sunday, it's around social housing and the decline in the number of social houses that are being built by the government. So back in 2020 there were 2,230, didn't meet demand. That dropped in 2021 to 1,000 998 and uh, for the first three quarters of 2022 that was down to 1,066. So the issue here is that we don't have housing, a sufficient volume of housing for people who need it but because we don't have a sufficient volume of housing for people who need it and we need to support those people, that doesn't mean that we can control what another cohort of our society do with their assets and their money. So we need to be really mindful of both groups but the issue, the, the fundamental basic issue is that we do not have enough social housing and the responsibility for that rests with government. Mm. Uh, one person has been in touch, by the way, about the whole uh, workplace gym situation. Uh, they said that I've sounded very bitter because news talk doesn't provide you with a gym. What's your salary? Um, I'm not going to tell you uh, what my salary is, but I will tell you that Virgin Media Television has a fine uh, service gym in Ballymount and uh, they, that is an excellent place that you should all uh, accept a job offer to if you're ever offered one because it is a wonderful place to work. Uh, news talk ain't bad on a Sunday morning either, I should say, for the record, um, Hugh, we mentioned the, um, the the long-term political consequences of the the evictions ban, and um, John Lee is is writing today in the Mail on Sunday that housing will destroy the coalition yeah. and any ambitions to lead with it. And um, I have to say, I'm kind of reaching the conclusion that even if the government is right and that um, it is better, it is the least worst option to to go ahead and lift the the moratorium now versus extending it for another ten months. That people tend to remember the government that inconvenienced them rather than the part of the government that sorted them out. So yeah. that I think that the die is now cast on, on how people will remember this coalition. Well, it, it, it may be. I mean, it is striking to see across the papers, I think, today. I mean, you mentioned John's piece, but the, there's a there's a wave of analysis, I would say, political analysis, that is that this this issue could, could kill this government. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not sure necessarily if that's that's true, but what it, what I think is true is that now it will come to dominate. I think the the coalition's remaining eighteen months or so in in office and getting a handle on housing. Um, and you know, I've sat in studios for ten years talking about the government yeah. needs to get a handle on the housing issue, uh, but but it really does on this occasion because you're right. I mean, I think this could this could be the issue that voters don't forget. And you see, I think what's really powerful in this is that TDs up and down the country are dealing with people who are affected by the ending of the eviction ban who are facing 
uh, potential homelessness. And, and that is the issue. That is the problem that bedevils this coalition is that if TDs are getting representations into their office uh, on this issue, then it, it, it just becomes uh, more and more problematic for them to, to vote with the government um, on uh, when, when these sort of motions uh, and, and you know, we're going to have two votes next week, a motion mm. of no confidence in the government and a, a bill to extend the eviction ban. And I do get the sense from the opposition and particularly Sinn Féin that they're going to try and continually kind of push these sort of a, mm. votes in a kind of a, an attrition war almost of, of trying to, uh, you know, mm. e uh, try to kind of... Um, cut away the government's yeah. majority and you do, well, you, you, on, on that note do you yeah. think that there's a prospect of any of any of the independent TDs who supported the government last Wednesday and who extracted some policy concessions mm. from them do you think there's a prospect of any of them having sided with the government last week siding against the government this week and, no, and I, either backing uh, Sinn Féin's bill yeah. or, or backing a I, I don't think so I mean I think that like I think the government's going to win both of these votes and I think they're probably possibly going to do it more comfortably than they than they did last week but you know, the longer it goes on, and I mean, you know, we, I point out in my own piece today that you know, in the last government was a Fine Gael independent minority government, and it lasted a lot longer than I think you and I would have, would yeah, have expected. Very true. Yeah, um, and that was because you know they, the good vote management in the Dáil, but it fell apart in January 2020 because they ran out of road and independent TDs and one at least one uh, coalition backbencher at the time, John McGuinness, indicated that they couldn't vote confidence in Simon Harris in the Dáil over over the health crisis yeah. at the time. and that's where it all came. Um, and that's where it came mm. unstuck. So it's likely that that could happen again, particularly when you think that it, when, uh, when you strip it down, the government's bare majority at the moment is one uh, after Nasser Hurrigan's departure last week. Mm -hmm. And there's no guarantee from, from what I'm picking up that she's going to side with the government in, in future votes well, because yeah. she's suspended from the Green Party for 15 months. And we, we revealed today in the paper that uh, Eamon Ryan was supportive of a proposition to, to suspend her from the party indefinitely. Oh. Um, and that indicates the degree to which um, I think there's a lot of uh, internal uh, strife within the Green Party. The people on Eamon Ryan's side are kind of saying, "Well, look, this is just the usual suspects giving out." But I mean, there was a there was a, a wave, not a wave, but there was a number of councillors out last week uh, publicly uh, criticising this decision by mm. the party to suspend Nasser Hurrigan. Uh, it is the usual suspects. Yes, people who've always been critical of, of of the Green Party, but some of them are talking actively about leadership change, um, and that kind of talk uh, was it's not going to trouble Eamon Ryan too yeah. much at this point. It, it only grows in my yeah, experience. And it, it's the, sport, the sort of thing that tends to destabilise governments. Yeah, doesn't it? absolutely. Um, Nasa Harrigan, by the way, is writing herself on page 27 of the Sunday Independent today about how the crisis is far from over. It's just the beginning for terrified tenants. Uh, I think it's her first public commentary explaining her vote uh, on, on Wednesday night. I think, I think as well, the, the point that she has made... Oh, <laughs> Siri, it's, no, Siri, I'm certain it is the first time she's spoken. Uh, I thought I had you on silent. I'm going to take my watch off for the next hour. Um, Sorry, Hugh. No, Beg your pardon. The, one of the points she's making is that the government's uh, in, in announcing a bunch of measures to try and offset the impact of this is, is kind of getting the local authorities to step in. And she's saying that they're kind of, you know, p p setting up the local mm. authorities for a fall here. I mean, I've been you know, covering the housing issue through, through politics for the last... Uh, since since I started in this job, uh, yeah. because it's been a, a, a seemingly never-ending crisis, and often the, the 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 complaint from TDs has been, well, the local authorities just aren't aren't up to scratch. And I think that you know, if we're relying on the local authorities to try and resolve uh, this particular element of the housing crisis, I think uh, we, we could be facing yeah. into, into trouble. Uh, someone's been in touch, I won't reveal their name, I suspect they wouldn't want me to, to say it out loud. Uh, they are a member of a wellness group and some of the other members of that wellness group reckon that uh, ayahuasca is fantastic. Uh, but this person say that they, says that they are too afraid to take anything more than cherry coke. Uh, <laughs> cherry coke has its upsides too. Um, I want to get uh, a, a couple of minutes, Louisa, just about the uh, the protest in France. But just before I do, because I, I want to just stay on housing just quickly for one second. Um, Hugh, you are yourself writing on page 
page six of the Sunday Independent today, just very briefly, if you can, about Dara O'Brien uh, may face an ethics row over defying planners, that he may, may now face an investigation uh, by Sippo um, for using what seemed like his own ministerial powers on, on the planning issue. Can you just explain that briefly for us? Yeah, so this is um, uh, the Galway City Development Plan. Uh, councillors basically voted, uh, as part of the plan, to zone 26 sites uh, for housing development. Uh, the Office of the Planning, and this is all part of, of how development plans are, are constructed yeah. and agreed. Um, the Office of the Planning Regulator, which was set up in 2019 off the, off the back of the, uh, the demand tribunal and, and irregularities in the planning system that, that it discovered. Uh, so this kind of new check and balance. They stepped in, they looked at the development plan and they uh, decided on foot of their own assessment and indeed the report of the Galway City's uh, Council Chief Executive at the time that 26 of these sites shouldn't be zoned for housing mm. and that they should revert to their uh, original, original zoning designation. Yeah. By and large, these were agricultural or sites yeah. uh, designated for agricultural. And Darrell Bryan disagrees. Darrell Bryan uh, agreed with the planning regulator on all but one site and that was a site, a uh, 2.8 hectare site in Rahoon uh, on the west side of the city or west of the city, I mm. should say. Uh, a site owned by Karen Holmes, who said they right. would build a hundred houses in that um, in in that spot. Um, now, Karen uh, lobbied uh, Darrell O'Brien. They lobbied local councillors. They say they never discussed the Rahoon site with with Darrell O'Brien or any other site. Darrell O'Brien says he wasn't even aware of the ownership of the site. But this is the subject of a complaint to SIPO by Liam Deegan, and he's the freelance journalist who was behind the complaint that and led Pascal to Donahue's uh, Pascal Donahue's yeah. postering uh, issues. Mm. So uh, this uh, and people I spoke to locally and and, and local council. Uh, did, did acknowledge that this thing kind of stands out. Now, there's no suggestion of any wrongdoing on the part of O'Brien or anyone else at yeah. this point, but obviously it's a matter that Sippo's going to have to take a look at now off uh, the back of the complaint. The clock is very much against us, and I'm hoping that's true because I just had to take off my watch because of its uh, Siri uh, interruption. But very briefly, uh, Louise, just a couple of pieces about the protests in, in France about the raising of the retirement age. A, a quick take on those? Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, the retirement age, they're talking about increasing it from 62 to 64. Um, the information in the papers is very much focusing in on the level of violence violence around the protests. I think people are entitled to protest to their heart's content. Violence and protests is not something that we should be seeing in European cities and countries. Um, Macron is certainly coming under pressure. There seems to be 72% in the Sunday Times they, they uh, highlight, 72% of those under the age of 35 are opposed to any uh, rise in retirement age. But given that France is one of the most expensive and generous pension systems in uh, Europe, you know, I think Macron is mm. again in a, in a really tough situation that he's going to have to push this ch- through. It's a matter of how much political capital can he conserve as he does so. Yeah. Uh, Louisa Meehan uh, from Woodview HRM, Hugh O'Connell from the Irish Independent, and Siri. Uh, thank you all for those <laughs> interjections as we examine today's papers. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PWC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.